Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago Mekochi Chistokom Aki. Hello, my name is Red Thunder Woman. Uh, my married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed Canadian-U.S. border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are, are uh, pardon me. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, composed of the Wesley, Chenakee, and Bearspaw Nations, and the Dene from Sutino. We acknowledge all First Nations, Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners on behalf of the uh, government signing on your behalf. Does it make any sense? Non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mo Kinstis. We're going live, so or we have a Zoom, so I'm trying to actually do it for the first time. Usually, I just say it. Mokinstis. Um, so I was born here as Michelle Elliott, and of course, I have my ringer on. Somebody's private messaging me. Um, my English name, which has afforded me really a lot of privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene. My father is so Canadian that I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter, a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me into the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clinchotine Intahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements and introductions are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the hosts as a guest and acknowledging my role as a treaty partner. Um, my humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes and misinterpretations will be on me. I want any um, misunderstandings cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I know as I walk down the red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talked about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at one 855 242-3310 and hopeforwellness.ca has a text option. Um, doo -doo -doo. And for non-Indigenous, there is distress lines in your area. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge in a support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and I want to thank Alexandra, Beatrice, Brian, Celine, Diana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kenna, Leah, Marisa, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, and The Sprawl, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. So there, that's my intro. Awesome. Yeah, so I want to welcome you, Heather. Heather, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Sure. Um, thank you for making that land acknowledgement and recognizing that we are guests on Blackfoot territory. Um, I'll introduce myself. My name is Heather Morjo. 
she, her, we pronouns. I identify as a queer woman and I uh, will recognize my indigenous spirit name. So um, Oki, Tansi, um, bonjour. Uh, my name is Natoi Atista Aki and I'm still practicing that from written. Um, I was given that name by an indigenous elder um, and it translates into holy rabbit woman. Awesome. Um, a little bit of uh, background about where I'm from, who I am. Um, my, I was born in Red Deer, Alberta, raised in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, on my father's side, my grandmothers are Métis, Kootenai, and German. On my mother's side, they are um, British, Scottish, Irish, and uh, settler, German um, as well. And so... <clears throat> Um, I'm an artist. I'm a social entrepreneur. I've been at the last provincial election. I ran with the Green Party of Alberta for the Calgary Buffalo riding, um, which is in downtown Calgary. Calgary is where I'm living now. And um, yeah, artist, activist. I am the, currently the board chair for Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Um, which is a charity dedicated to helping people who are recovering from addiction, trauma, and um, needs support and can't access funding either um, or don't want to slip through the cracks of the system. So we provide those services for free. And we are a charity um, supported by donations. Um, and that's how we met. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess... I, that's not necessarily true, but that's how we've really started to work together. That's for mm -hmm. sure. And, um, you know, we have really appreciated you bringing me into the Freedom's Path Society world. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was sponsored to take the Mending Broken Hearts to become a facilitator. And, you know, I've always talked about that uh, huge gap that's missing for uh, especially those women who face violence that the, um, you know, current programming is just not really acceptable because it's not Indigenous inclusive. It doesn't accept our intergenerational trauma. It doesn't understand deep colonial rooted hate against Indigenous women. Mm -hmm. So for me, Mending Broken Hearts was uh, one of those, you know, possible helpers in filling those gaps because uh, that those services just aren't available. And um as you can see, we're here, we're done the inquiry and there's what, 231 calls to justice. And I hear, I heard zero parties talking about that federally at the last election, provincially nothing. And then, uh, you know, here we have families that are still grieving and no real support services for them. And then, um, of course, that is also part of the world of uh, then addiction and mm -hmm. trying to stay uh, sober. So, you know, I've, uh, I think that's some of the best work that can be done, in my opinion. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And some other marginalizations that exist in the addiction treatment system is for queer people. Um, so if you come into the program of recovery, um, there are some people who regard being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, um, intersex as a addiction that needs to be cured really so yes and so it was really important for david 
um, the executive director and myself to really honor the fact that, you know, when queer people come in, I, I identify as queer, so that's the term I use, um, come into the addiction treatment program and they get told, oh, if you're gonna get sober, you're also going to have to get straight. That is so harmful in, on so many levels. So being indigenous and either two-spirit and queer, dealing with domestic violence, like there, there's... Okay, um, Heather, I, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to laugh at this. It's just, it's, it's so ridiculous to me what you mm -hmm. just said. And yet people say this to you, to not just you, but to vulnerable people in one of the most vulnerable moments of their life. Mm -hmm. And that sure is not funny. It's just shocking, I think, to people. Well, it's shocking to me. I should just talk for me. I'm, I'm shocked that anybody would think that's ever acceptable to say, let alone in that huge moment of trauma, recovery, and trying to find a road to do this hard work. Yeah. It's just shocking to me. Yeah. Uh, and and it it keeps going right like um myself living with a mental illness disability told they told me that my mental health medication was a relapse right so <laughs> you know and and that could have killed me it, it nearly did you know so there's a lot of intersections of you know <clears throat> high risk people being told that what takes care of them and helps them survive is not acceptable you know i just that just blows my mind i mm -hmm. i just can't understand how people would be so i, I is self-righteous the right word or ignorant um both combined is there a better uh, word <laughs> you know and I, I i've really tried to get into the mindset of people who say these things but i really struggle to understand what would drive a mindset like that. I don't know if it's self-entitled or self-righteous. I, I can't connect with it. It's beyond me. So it's um just right now in my my head. What's happening is the moment we're done here, um, we're I'm gonna hop in my van and go down to Mindapur. Mm -hmm. There in Mindapur, um, the Lacombe House burnt down in 1999, mm -hmm. and there's a cemetery adjacent to it uh, called the Sisters of Providence. Fort Providence is where the Sacred Heart Indian Residential School was. Um, all of this is connected to Father Lacombe and uh, Indian Residential Schools, Reconciliation, the Four Straight Agenda. All of this is going on in my head because mm -hmm. I just read a chapter of um, Calgary's gay history. And from that, it's just hit me like, you know, the, these are a few, you know, hundred words on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. But so many people don't understand the pain and trauma on Easter weekend right now. Today's Easter Sunday. And I'm just like, people still don't get it. They still mm -hmm. don't understand how much harm forcing the straight agenda has been on these lands. And uh, the, the grave I'm going to go see, how he even got in there, I'm not too sure. Because uh, uh, gay, gay history book made it very clear that Basically, all of the people that were exiled to the colonies or here um, mm -hmm. were people who they considered sexually deviant, deviant in any way, mm -hmm. and they forced them to come here. And this one fellow, a French name actually, and I'm sure I'll say it wrong, but it's like L apostrophe H, and it's like, he, um, he is gay. Hello. 
yep mm-hmm. and he he tried uh really hard to like be a catholic priest and be a jesuit uh person and and do all of the things to be a respected you know leader of faith and of course they always found him having gay sex so mm-hmm. then he lost that status so how he even got buried in that uh um cemetery is its own victory for a gay man i think but but ultimately uh they didn't even label his grave properly um probably because he was a gay man and he was lucky enough to even be buried there right so i'm going to go visit his grave and just kind of think about that and have that part of uh you know my reflection of easter sunday so mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's that's really powerful and I, and and i'll just mention on my mother's side being of celtic descent and um irish heritage you know easter is um one of the holidays for like rebirth is 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 bull i believe is how it's pronounced in some traditions um you know we celebrate the egg rebirthing the next year the rabbits coming out of their hibernation into the brown colors again and then sorry white from brown not hibernation and uh you know bringing a new um fertility festival right so um you know i i definitely understand that whole concept of you know trying to conform to straight agenda to christian agenda to all of that you know and and uh um i feel like i'm just recovering from that now (laughs) in some ways you know i my heart goes out to you on that because uh i am what straight monogamous cis Mm-hmm. And I see the devastation, the awful impact all of this straight agenda has caused. Yeah. So for you, you know, like actually not being straight and cis, like, or, well, not being I'm, straight is, yeah. is uh, it's its own challenge. And I, that's why uh, I see it in my own family. Um, my family took the Christian pill very hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, those who identify as LGBTQ2 plus in my own family are at the greatest harm for mm. you know misgendering mocking ridiculing bullying i've seen it personally with my own eyes so yeah. it's awful yeah. yeah and and i will say with my family it's always been really positive and supportive um when i came out to my friends at age 14 to my parents at age 19 um, they were always very supportive of my sexuality and identity and just encourage me to be safe, take care of myself. And, um, you know, I'm one of many queer people in my family. Um, so there's, there's a, you know, there was those that came before me that paved the way for my coming out. So I'm grateful to my cousins for that. Right on. Yeah, no, I'm happy for you. I, uh, I, uh, I know what it was like growing up in Sylvan Lake and mm-hmm. a very anti-gay culture in central Alberta. Um, you know, the, we had the uh, KKK rallies and uh, neo-Nazi, you know, weekends and, and where the irony being now that I'm older and I understand there was a lot of homosexuality rampant in that, but it was like a real self-hate, self-loathing type thing happening there too. So, yeah. you know, I have a lot of respect for you coming out in Red Deer in central Alberta at all, let alone, uh, you know, and that your family was good about it. That's great. Yeah. You want to hear a funny story about uh Yes. coming out in red deer yes okay. um so i had joined um pride on campus which was the red deer college queer queer group right like lgbtq people just gathered together and did different events and and um 
I was pretty young and trying to connect with people. So I joined this group and we would go out for Wednesday wing nights, right? Um, lesbian Wednesday wing nights. So there would be a whole bunch of us who would go out to this pub in southern South Red Deer um, and listen to music and buy wings and drinks and hang out, right? And so I'm there with my girlfriend and for we're sitting in a chair together and for like three seconds there was just like a lingering kiss that's it okay over in the other corner of the bar there's this hetero couple who are, are basically engaged in like a heavy petting like <laughs> event right and this is pretty normal for a red deer pub. totally I'll say that. <laughs> um so but yeah so three three second kiss with my um very butch femme girlfriend and the bar manager came up to us and told us that we had to leave mm -hmm. because we were engaging in inappropriate behavior for a bar in Red Deer. <laughs> and so, um, <clears throat> like, seriously, like when we talk about that, um, and I can vouch for you, like, mm -hmm. I'm not kidding when men will put their hands down women's pants and not think twice about it. Yeah. It's like women, they don't know. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but yeah, it is a funny story, but it just shows how rampant um, yeah. sexual or uh, homophobia still is. So yeah, and then so a friend that was uh, the leader of the Gay Straight Alliance or the Pride on Campus group posted that on a forum online, and it went national. So we ended up getting in the newspaper, in the national newspaper, they were talking about. Um, filing a human rights complaint we had never actually said we were going to do that because it's, it's getting kicked up at a bar it's not you know denial of a human right access like housing or medical or something like that mm -hmm. um so we never felt that was necessary but um yeah it, it became a national story about these two lesbian girls getting kicked out of a bar for a three-second kiss <laughs> and uh it was one of those weird things that happened in Red Deer. It's <laughs> so funny. One of my favorite parts of the book that I've read so far is that it was talking about Queen Victoria. And um, anyone who's ever watched um, The Pirates, it's one of my favorite mm -hmm. movies ever. So I always call her Queen Vicky now that because of that. So mm -hmm. Queen Vicky was like, uh, they were putting together like, you know, homosexual laws, or I guess anti-homosexual laws. And uh, they had a section for lesbians. And she was like, girls can't do that so they actually took it out at originally and I just I, I just like sit here and giggle and giggle about that and think about that and then my daughter who's identifying as pansexual and someday she's like mom I think I'm full out lesbian I don't know if I can be around boys at all which cracks me right up because yeah. I don't know what the future will hold but um you know it just it's funny to hear her say that and then when we read this part about Queen Vicky we laughed mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well I can't wait to tell her your story yeah yeah I still have the newspaper clipping if she wants to see it we want to see that <laughs> for yeah. show yeah. yeah and and actually um I'll, I'll use your queen Vicky as a segue for what I wanted to chat with you about today let's do it um, yeah because um we're in the middle of the COVID-19 global pandemic everyone is is shut down isolated governments are basically ruling over the people deciding whether or not they get funding whether or not they go to jail for being out in public or what businesses are allowed to run um, who gets paid 
whether the banks get paid or the the landlords get paid it's a really interesting time um right now hello kitty and so i wanted to talk about what would i do were i queen of canada and uh which is funny because my little cat was just under my chair (laughs) it reminds me of a nursery poem Uh, children's nursery poem oh yeah Actually, uh, cats are on Twitter. They're totally trending. But anyway, I please continue. It. I believe it. Um, so it's, it's kind of a difficult mindset to get into. Some people are like Queen of Canada. There is no Queen of Canada. <coughs> but they're actually, yeah. We're a constitutional oh, monarchy. Who says that? <laughs> uh, people who don't understand our politics, right? Or they'll say, <coughs> she's just a figurehead, right? <laughs> And not realizing that every single elected official, whether it's municipal, provincial, federal, has to swear an allegiance to uphold her power. Okay. Yep. So, you know, when when I learned that the Queen of Canada existed, that every single citizen is under her rule you know I started to do some digging I realized that when I was in grade school I had pledged an allegiance to the Queen of Canada not fully understanding who she was or what this pledge meant right um as as an indigenous person I I don't take pledges lightly and so it was really bothersome to me to realize oh shit I pledged this allegiance to this woman who lives in another continent you know, has maybe been here six times in her life and is the number one landowner in Canada um, of the Canadian land, right? And water. Pardon? And water. Yes, and water. Yep. And the second um, most wealthy landowner in Canada is the Catholic Church. Um, And this isn't just for volume of land. This is also quality of land. So when we look at like the fact that all indigenous people had been forced onto reserve, those reserves were considered the least valuable quality of land, the least likely to produce food or minerals or anything of value. So that was the land that they got pushed into. Um, a percentage of every single taxpayer dollar goes to the British monarchy, whether it's to their houses here to maintain the things that they have here, or whether it's <clears throat> to maintain their homes in Britain, mm. in the United Kingdom. Um, so I personally found this super disturbing because it's a lot of um, colonial power structures over canadian citizens that they're not even aware of yeah i know they're uh anyone who's ever been door knocking knows that uh, the average joe doesn't know the difference between municipal provincial federal mm-hmm. let alone the queen issues here mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um and so there has been um some movement in politics now for indigenous people to swear their allegiance on an eagle feather instead of on a bible yeah. however they're still swearing that allegiance to the queen of Canada. Yeah. Um, she has representatives. No law passes in Canada without 
a signature from one of those representatives. Royal so descent. They, yeah, royal descent. So they are making decisions about what happens to the citizens here, about what happens to the businesses here. Um, there are um, a, a few royal trust businesses still remaining in Canada, but not as many. Um, <clears throat> originally, historically, from what I understand, they were resource extraction companies, gold, diamonds, minerals, you know, the stuff that royal people like to wear <laughs> and, uh, and squander. And so they had a number of businesses that did that, some banks, and, um, but today there's very few of those. Um, and so what came into my mind is, you know, I'm aware of what the royal monarchy of Britain is doing for Canada, which I personally feel is ensuring that their power structure is under control and not necessarily for the benefit of the people or the citizens um, or the land. Yep. Right? It's, it's a very hands-off, um, grandfather's in control or grandmother's in control, but not necessarily doing anything good for the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, so regularly I would come into the, the mind, uh, the thought exercise of what would I do if I were queen, right? So we all have this opportunities where we could be in power, right? And what some scientific study has demonstrated it, in this colonial system, when people are given power, like police officers, jail officers, things like this, um, politicians, they instantly become corrupt. They, they can justify poor behavior. And so um, I had to like ask myself, if I were in a position of authority, if I were in the position of the greatest authority in Canada, what would I do with that responsibility? Mm. Right. And so I was just playing with the idea in my mind. And right now, during this pandemic, there's a lot of opportunity for shift, right? Um, I would love to see all of the Indigenous people recognized as the sovereign care and keepers of this land, okay? And the, the way I imagined that happening was a revolution peaceful revolution perhaps the queen herself decides she doesn't want Canada anymore and she gives it to me right like you don't you don't know how this is going to come about this sounds like if, a great book though that will, I will love to read yeah I'm working on it I'm working <laughs> on it it's been um it's been in my mind for about eight years so mm -hmm. um but the the thought process was essentially you know what would we do as a nation um, right now, Justin Trudeau is giving s some money to some citizens to help support them through this emergency. Um, however, I would like to see, he's also bailing out corporations. He's also buying a pipeline and trying to force it through sovereign indigenous lands, the lands that they assumed would have nothing of value. You know, um, I would prefer, if I were Queen of Canada, that no businesses would receive any bailouts, no corporations. It would be only the citizens who would receive taxpayer money to taxpayers. Businesses would not receive those taxes. Um, and the reason for that is capitalism is a gamble. Cap deciding to engage in a business 
is a risky venture and it should not be supported by government. Government is in should be, in my opinion, in charge of ensuring the safety and well-being of the people and the lands. Um, the businesses can manage themselves, right? And they have a responsibility to uphold the laws of the nation, but they're not going to get bailed out. Um, this is a, a concept called trickle-up econ economics. Right now we're using trickle-down economics. So the money goes to the corporations and the people get the scraps off the table um, that trickle down when the businesses are profitable and have not used up all that money with their CEOs getting millions of dollars a year, right? So um, first and foremost, basic universal living income needs to be implemented nationally. Um, and I, I feel like this would do a lot of things for people who are marginalized at risk in poverty. Um, it's going to alleviate a lot of the stress of day-to-day -day life, day-to-day -day food and water. It's also going to give people an opportunity to do something other than slavery, wage slavery for their livelihoods. So they might actually be able to do something that they're good at, something that's meaningful to them, you know, pursue their passion. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so that, that was one of the first thoughts that came out of that. Um, uh, let me take a look at some of the other things that I, I wrote here. Uh, I talked about, you know, I wrote, I wrote a few notes here and what I really wrote about a lot about was like the end of empires, you know, mm -hmm. and when empires end, um, there's usually a big shift, you know, I'd like to see Canada be a new Republic. So instead of it being a monarchy, a colonial monarchy where the uh, Democrat, sorry, democracy is to maintain the crown. I would like to see the democracy maintain a Republic. Um, and that Republic being directed by indigenous leaders across the nation. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I fantasize about Star Trek, st sorry, Star Wars and Queen Amidala of Nibiru. Nibiru. Am I saying that right? Mm. Naboo. And um, how they would educate one, like a number of young women, young indigenous women to this planet yeah. on the policies of running the, the program and then she would get elected to queen for a four-year term. So if Canada were a new republic under a, a queen, that would be the type of monarchy I'd prefer to see, right? So I would, mm -hmm. I would get appointed that position. This is all fantasy, right? I, I would get appointed that position by the British queen. She would say, yes, you could have Canada. That, that would be the program that I would enact is to make sure that young indigenous women are trained in governance of lands you know um and then given opportunities to take up that position when they come of age mm. um and and when i say women i, I mean self-identifying women i don't mean um biological biological women right because um, i am respectful of that and so i i'd love to see uh can I pause you there? Yeah, of course. Do you think for a second, like, what is it that's different here that you and I, like, see that so clearly, 
but like there's this, a huge movement in Europe uh, well I'd say more Britain than anywhere like something called a turf where it's just like these so-called feminists who just absolutely do not recognize transgender women like why do you think that is what, what is the trans exclusionary radical feminist is what I think turf stands for um, it, it comes from a place of trauma okay so you've got many women who have been trying and fighting for equal rights for many many years we're not there okay there there is no equal rights for women there is more rights and there is more freedoms um, and more protections but not necessarily equal um, or even um, equitable at this point so you've got a whole bunch of traumatized women who have been told that just because they were born with a uterus and with a vagina they are not um, with a vulva sorry um, they are not valuable citizens they're not valuable people so the very concept of the to them of somebody with different genitalia being recognized at the same level as a woman that they are after they fought for so long for rights is something that they can't handle right and so they're fighting very hard against um transgender people um intersex people people who can't have children there there are some turfs who actually say if you can't bear children you know then then you're not recognized under their rights and and i don't support it i've, I've unfriended people who have started in that rhetoric like you know the only woman is a woman who can bear children and and carry on the life line because that's their innate power you know is really cruel um on on multiple levels um you know and and i think it comes from a really christian concept of what a person is right and and a very colonial construct so a person is an entity upon which the government can take out a debt for the nation when you're born on your assumed labor the government is going to say this person is going to accumulate this much money for our nation right and so they can actually take out loans and debt with other nations and with banks based on your birth on their nation um, so there's this concept that a person is uh, entity of business right and the entity of business of a man is going to get more than a woman you know and that you um, there is no spirit to that right there is no soul to that um, the the very construct that our flesh defines our humanity right and that our flesh defines our soul and I use the soul as like the essence and spirit of who we are as a person not in the Christian context of a soul going to heaven or hell um, you know I do believe that there is something beyond this flesh that is energetic and has a, a spirit to it has a has an identity you know and this flesh that we are in is just a temporary vessel you know um, and so the the genitalia that you get when you are born into this flesh is not necessarily going to reflect exactly who you are you know um, and, and I, 
I have a lot of, um, you know, love for the two-spirit concept, right? Um, how it defines people as, and there are some communities who believe two-spirit represents someone who has both a male and female entity within them. But there are some people who actually see it as genderless, right? And that your spirit identity will, will choose the gender roles or path that you take, take based on what your, um, who you are in a spiritual sense, not a physical gender sense. Um, and I'm just going to point out that intersex people, there are, I think there were, there's 13 primary variations of genitalia, which are both uh, vulva and gonads, right? So we say, you know, gonads, male genitalia, and for women, it's a vulva. You can have both of those in a person, and they're still a person, right? And they're not male or female, and they are over... 1% of the population. Um, I believe it's like one in 10 babies are going to be born with some variation of that. Maybe they don't even realize it because it's internal and they don't realize it until puberty or they have children. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I j I bring up the turf concept because, um, and I'm really grateful that you explained all of that really well, because I think, uh, we need to have more conversations about that in general and um you know well uh body autonomy um you know i remember when i was having my daughter and i was really concerned about just a simple conversation about male circumcision um and we never got to that point of like full body autonomy in case her sex organs look differently um and we we've never checked on the inside what that looks like yet mm -hmm. so um you know that that's the whole point like body autonomy and how many parents and hospital staff just take it upon themselves to decide for somebody right then and there and that's not okay that's mm -hmm. that's it's not okay um but the biggest point i wanted to bring about the turfs was that uh you know we're I'm talking about violence, gendered violence in general, um, but um, female violence. Mm -hmm. And here we have across the pond, these, you know, Christian colonial white people who are like so narrow-minded on the way that they're looking at this conversation. And here we are, Indigenous people trying to survive on our own land that were stolen by those people. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, created this whole government on top of us, you know, take us by um, the RCMP at any point in time, steal our children at any point in time. And, uh, you know, they're splitting hairs over, you know, <laughs> whether a person born with a penis is a woman, even though they dress like a woman, get beaten up all the time, are, are mistreated, have trauma. And that, I mean, that was something I probably should have talked about when you were talking about basic income is that um, how much trauma will be avoided by people not having to go through poverty trauma because poverty trauma is its own like world of of hurt and pain and and people just don't see it they don't understand it and then it just perpetuates mm -hmm. yeah. well and the the system of binary gender makes humans easier to control if you're a monarchy and your entire or a church and your entire basis is to control the population 
to manage them as a resource rather than to honor them as individuals, which is what I consider the indigenous governance method, um, then it's much easier to put them in two categories. You have some rights, you have less rights, you have to be dependent on these, these rights of this person in order to have um, autonomy of any kind, you know, and all your children belong to this one entity. You know, it's um, the hierarchical system ensure it goes all the way down you know mm -hmm. you have the monarchy in charge of god i look so pale in this light <laughs> like i look it's blue. funny i was thinking this light makes me look like um i have bags under my eyes i didn't even need to wear makeup because it doesn't look i'm wearing any yeah, <laughs> yeah i just look blue it's very weird anyway yeah. um so you've got the queen at the top you know and then all of her people that are making sure that her power is in charge yep this democratic system has a prime minister and then all the people making sure he stays in charge or they, they stay in charge yeah. and then even the family structure you put the man at the top to make sure that he is in charge of the family unit it's just easier to control the power structure mm -hmm. and when monarchies have a history of getting overthrown through violent revolution you know vivre la revolution you know and guillotine for mismanaging of citizens um, you know, it's just an easier way to maintain the system. Mm -hmm. You know, you keep, women are very powerful at revolutionizing the family, the state, the society, right? And I think that when we're looking at huge changes in the empires falling and societies changing, it's always pivoted on the status of women. Mm -hmm. um, so in North America, we're rejecting this concept wholeheartedly, you know, wholeheartedly. All of Turtle Island, the majority of people, I feel, are rejecting the concept of the nuclear family, of the single governance over people. Um, they don't want to be controlled like a commodity. Um, that's why there's so much fear right now, I feel, about the idea of forced vaccinations, you know, or um boy that's a conversation whole lot well and I, I think it's relevant like we're when we're talking about the future like we're on a pivot point mm -hmm. every time there's been a world war or a pandemic or something like this there's been a big pivot in society yeah. so i feel like we've got the best opportunity now to build the world we want to see to distance ourselves from that old monarchy and build something here in north america that's meaningful um, and i don't think it should be built on capitalism um, you know, when we look at our medical system, if I were Queen of Canada, um, our medical system would not be for profit. Okay. The very concept that medicine and healing is a for profit is like selling snake oil. Do you remember that concept? Like back in the, I think it was probably during the old recession when people couldn't afford medicine and everyone was sick from malnutrition and everything. Well, seriously, you. it's happening right now, though, where, mm -hmm. um, you know, they shut down Alex Jones because he was talking about, I don't know what he was talking about, but he was trying to sell something. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result, they called him a snake oil salesman. Yeah. 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 But as long as any healing is for profit, you know, it's going to be harmful. So we can even look at like some indigenous ceremonies have been profit focused, you know, and not to honor 
the the skills and talents of the indigenous elders who are running those ceremonies or the ceremonists who are running them they're literally selling the ceremonies for their own wealth you know so that they're they're able to buy a hummer right um so this whole system of medicine for wealth is corrupt we're not going to have vaccines that are trustworthy when the manufacturing company that creates those vaccines is owned by a corporation that says to the nation like Canada, hey, you can have these vaccines, but we will not be responsible if vaccine injury occurs. Okay, you country, Canada, you are responsible if our vaccine is mis is harming people either through um, their own genetic codes or through a bad batch. So imagine a car company that says, hey, we're going to sell this car in your country and we're not going to be responsible if there is manufactured defects and the car starts blowing up on the highway. You know, we're not going to recall, we're not going to repair it. You know, that's what vaccine companies are like right now. Right. And so how can we expect people to trust those ethics or those practice medical practices? At this I've point? seen it online, especially in social media. Oh, the hate mm-hmm. towards anyone who's talking like this, like, yeah. it, like it, it's, it's awful. And I know like, even for us, like we have the um, egg, we have the um, casein is a main ingredient that's um, derivative of cow's milk mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I've talked to, tried, well, I've tried to talk to people. When I had my daughter, um, I call it a birth rape from the way the uh, hospital treated me. Wow. So I, I actually, um, you know, worked with my MLA. We got midwifery funded here in Alberta. And that was done on midwifery day. Mm-hmm. But it was the bigger picture because of uh, the medical autonomy that I didn't have. I uh, really got into that world of um, mistrust of the medical community. And mm-hmm. so I'm still in those forums today. And mm-hmm. the, the things I'm seeing publicly from so-called progressives and, and even um, conservatives, like they truly have it in their head that Trump is doing the good work of Christianity mm-hmm. and that Democrats and left-leaning people are evil and that uh, somehow like Trump profiting from the vaccine is somehow going to save us from the devil. Like, I don't quite understand that kind of crazy, but Mm -hmm. it's um, like that belief system is so out there. And at the end of the day, like you and I both ran, we both had our, um, you know, strong convictions and our strong belief systems, um, but majority rules. And at the end of the day, the mob of people that are out there with these ridiculous thoughts and feelings. Like, uh, <laughs> actually, it was funny. I came across this one progressive uh, thread and they were like, well, I don't know what we're going to do with these people. And, you know, maybe we'll just have to ban them from the schools and all these things. And I'm like, sweet. Okay. Well, I guess mm-hmm. we don't have to go to these stupid institutions that are doing nothing but hurting our children and creating more trauma anyway. But of course, they don't want to have that conversation. I, I would never engage in those conversations because that's just a miss they take anything you have to say so out of context and put words in your mouth it's not even uh worth the time but these trolls are everywhere on both sides where they just uh want to take away your civil liberties uh we're seeing that you're talking referencing the police state earlier Mm -hmm. um 
you know, right now, call the cops on your neighbors, call the cops on uh, people gathering, call the cops. Like we have, <laughs> this is the insanity right now where the Calgary police were doing a helicopter patrol mm-hmm. over top of an empty lot. And there was whatever, five um, East Indian women doing their dance, um, you know, cars lengths away from each other. And uh, they were videotaping it. And I know what their real intention was. Their real intention was, is we're going to bust up these people, blah, 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 blah. But they, they couldn't because they couldn't show that they were breaking the law. There's video footage of them <laughs> taping them. So they weren't mm-hmm. breaking any laws. Yeah. But I think the average uh, knucklehead, like, or knuckle dragger maybe, is just like, you know, take away everybody's civil liberties. Put them in, like, they would rather have... Mm-hmm awful zombie type people <laughs> locked in their basement and um and not you know spreading this virus but i i don't know what to say anymore like well, it, it's so painfully clear the police are targeting the most marginalized people if you're black you're brown or red you're or yellow like yellow is really getting it right now too yeah so, yeah. yeah well and it's all fear yep right like when when people are in a state of not being able to control their body autonomy, their family structures, their access to resources, food, shelter, you know, all of these things, they're going to lash out in fear. Yeah. You know, it's a very animalistic, you know, you corner a wolf, it's going to bite you. Right. And everyone's cornered right now. So they're biting each other, Mm. you know, not recognizing that they're being divided. because it's it's not about vax anti-vax it's about having a medical system which honors humans their health their personal body autonomy their personal right to choice um and wanting to heal them for the purpose of healing people not for the purpose of profit Mm. right um you know you you've got people who who are talking about like oh it's a good thing that we've got these police locking people up for dancing in the street okay the reason those people think it's a good idea is because if they're focusing on someone else they're not looking at me right focus on these brown red and yellow people and black people don't focus on me because I'm scared that I'm going to lose my home. I'm scared that I'm going to lose this small amount of money that the government is giving me to get my basic essential living supplies during this terrifying time in history, right? When we could be allaying all of those fears <clears throat> very quickly by doing a couple simple things, right? One is make it illegal for anyone to own more than one house in North America. Okay. So right now there is way more than enough houses to ensure that every single person has a place to live. But because we are capitalist focused, these houses get bought up and then rented out by landlords or they get bought up and kept vacant until the market goes up enough that they can sell it at a profit. Mm -hmm. However, if 
I were Queen of Canada, I would make it illegal for anyone to own more than one home, right? You only need the house you occupy. If this happened, the cost of housing would drop so fast and so dramatically that a person living on minimum wage could afford to buy a house or buy an apartment, right? And that would be their equity. That would be their property, their, their safety net, mm -hmm. right? The, yep. the very concept that we're charging to live on this planet is absurd, right? Whether we're living in teepees or we're living in a multi-complex, state-of-the-art, smart apartment building, the idea that we're paying for that is, is absurd because it is something we all require, right? So I don't think we should be charging anyone for land. I think landlords should be removed from the equation um completely which makes some of my friends very angry <laughs> because that's their livelihood they they survive because someone pays them to live in their home um you know and then we can do things like allow food to be grown anywhere right so right now you're not there's there's places on in north america right now and, and I should be saying Turtle Island instead of North America. I just say North America because I don't like saying Canada and USA, right? Because they are corporations. They are not nations, right? I don't recognize them as, as nationhoods the same way I would, I would recognize Turtle Island as, an, as a land, a nation, right? So um, if we had food growing everywhere, there's a great documentary that I watched called How Cuba Survived Peak Oil. So this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were cut off and embargoed from all of the oil and gas. They had nothing, right? And they were able to transform every patio, every spot of dirt in the city, every rooftop into a garden, right? And they were able to grow food for everyone. Now they have the climate for that. We don't here in, in Alberta. <laughs> right where it's still snowing in april <clears throat> however if we in instead of recognizing instead of putting grass everywhere grass is the number one um irrigated crop in north america and it's completely ornamental it was originally brought to north america because they wanted to snub their nose at the aristocrats in europe and say oh only aristocrats get grass yards in Europe. We get grass yards everywhere in North America. Look at us, you know. And, and so it was really a, a childish reason that we started putting grass everywhere. And it's resulted in a lack of food sovereignty where we are dependent on migrant workers from other companies to come or from other countries to come to Canada and do our farming at a slave wage rate just so we can afford to buy the food that we need to survive or we're importing it and paying tons of money in gas and trucking expenses to bring food that could grow here from somewhere else right and then hey david just came home from his walk um so then we've got if we've got housing covered everyone's allowed to have one house and it's affordable. Then we've got the land sovereign, sovereignty of land where everyone's allowed to grow food, 
wherever they wish. I don't know why we're selling water at all. Oh, I do. <laughs> right? Like, uh, water is life. In, in the indigenous hierarchy, it is the top. It is the most important thing because nothing else lives without it. Humans are at the bottom of that hierarchy. I know, but you can't come if like these corporations and crowns and, and colonial structures, like mm -hmm. all they care about is money, money, money. And which is also just a, a false construct. They won't survive without water either. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know. I wish, I wish we could, uh, you know, switch that mentality. Like even when you're talking about owning the land, like that's, that's totally a colonial concept. Like totally. they that was brought here that wasn't mm -hmm. like we were going to share the land and they just don't know how to share it's like yeah. mine 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 mm -hmm. yeah yeah and, and and some of my language i, I acknowledge completely is colonial right yeah. Yeah. because i'm trying to find a bridge between here we're trapped in this colonial hell <laughs> hell yep <laughs> i don't know how else to call it yeah because it's making everyone miserable everyone's scared everyone's angry desperate alone right and then we've got the indigenous way of life which most of these people can't even understand nope right they can't even connect to the idea of sharing the land nope they can't idea connect to the idea that the tree is your brother that you don't cut down the tree because you own it you know you cut down the tree because it's your brother and it's giving its life so that you can survive and are you willing to give your life for them if they call on you? Mm. Right? Like that's so far from where they can go. So I realized when I'm talking about queen and land and everyone owns one house, it's up here. It's in that colonial construct. But I'm yeah. trying to get people to start looking at things in a way where they can see the value of sharing the land. If everyone only owns their house then they are going to be sharing the world with their neighbors mm -hmm. and they're going to be building a community that's that's based off of equitable access to basic needs which is an indigenous approach you know yeah um so I'm, I'm trying to use these concepts as like a way of helping people who are really stuck in this mindset to shift over here and I realize most of your listeners are probably already over here and well aware that the indigenous approach works I'm not sure if worked. they are though like I've seen some of my demographics some of the stats that we've gone through and um you know and it's really clear like my closest friends don't listen to my um my podcast my family so like I don't know who my who the people are that listen but I know that most of the people that donate are non-indigenous so I, I think actually it is a lot of non-Indigenous listening and, um, you know, so they probably have no concept of the idea of what it's like to share the land. And like we talk about one person owning the land, Blackfoot culture, um, the women own the teepee. Mm -hmm. So if the men screwed up, they got kicked out. That is that simple. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's who should own the, the property should always be the woman because they're the ones taking care of the kids. Yeah. and um, yet we don't <laughs> it's the opposite in the colonial british westminster uh colonial structure of you know men 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 and now mm -hmm. look where it's got us you know yeah and and 
I, I have so much respect for the way the Blackfoot people have protected so much of their traditional practices. Mm. You know, like it's, it's really incredible to see, to be here on, as a guest on this land and to be able to see how much of their culture and traditions they have kept and that they're willing to share with people like me who are not Blackfoot, who are living here, you know, and, and they are saying, you know what, we kept our culture alive. You will respect it and you will respect it by learning about it, you know, by going to the Blackfoot crossing and by going to um, acknowledge ceremony or acknowledge t- territories and stuff like that. Mm. Um, sorry, I got distracted by my phone. Um, to acknowledge the lands and the territories and the different people in the community who are leaders. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, totally. No, there, I, uh, I definitely see almost everyone as an intruder unless you're on your own territory because it's, they're broken treaties. Right. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for the smallpox a- epidemic, like germ warfare is what has allowed all the intrusion of, uh, you know, Calgary and Southern Alberta to be mm-hmm. a thing at all. And, um, you know, the Catholic church, oh, la, I don't know how they sleep at night and their followers. Mm-mm. I don't get it. I don't get how you could have caused this much tra- pain, trauma, land theft. Um, it's uh, embedded in their um, institutions when it comes to governance is all this Christian dogma. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is so shocking to me how people are not just okay with it, but they fight to the death for this. Yeah. Um, that, it makes me so sad that they would fight for this stupid system. Well, and the the delusion that they have yeah. is uh, that I believe they have, right? From based on my experience, I when I came into recovery, I tried very hard to be a good Christian. You know, I rejected my pagan upbringing, I rejected my land based teachings, and I said, "I'm going to be a good Christian, a born again virgin. I'm going to like be baptized in the blood of Christ." Right? And I tried really hard to connect with this mentality because I thought that was what I thought that my um, paganism, pagan upbringing was part of what got me to addiction, right? But I realized, no, it was actually, um, some of the shame that the Christian community put on me. Um, but what I learned is that they look at the horrors, some of them look at the horrors that they've inflicted on the world and said, God would not have allowed us to let that happen unless we were the chosen people. I was, uh, I seen a really funny meme yesterday and it was like, uh, Ramses was like giving everybody the eye, like, what are you guys talking about? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, he went through like 10 plagues in his reign and, um, and it was funny because so I was going to tell Sam this and she's like, oh, we studied it in Christian school because she went to a Lutheran um, school mm-hmm. and they did that dogma right in her head where she believed or no, she knows they believe and they mm-hmm. taught her that, you know, because God loves them so much mm-hmm. and was trying to fight them out of slavery. And that is like so asinine because the, the Old Testament, the New Testament all justifies slavery, which is mm-hmm. why you know, everyone was totally cool. Well, are still to this day okay with slavery. Mm -hmm. I think you touched it really nicely in the basic income conversation of how we're all slaves. And, um, you know, people don't even see it. They don't even get it. And Mm -hmm. it's this Christian dogma that actually allows this to continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And that fear of hell, you know, translates into 
Well, if I go on the debt strike and say I'm not paying my debt during this crisis, it's going to affect my credit score. My credit score is going to go into hell. And then I go, then I'm excluded from the social hierarchy of um, owning property, right? Like it, it, it's so twisted. And I wish I could like lay it out in a visual, but I, I haven't gotten to that point yet where I can create that kind of visual to show people. Yeah. yeah. Because when women are part of an indigenous matriarchal community, you mentioned that they are in charge of the children. And so they, the, the home belongs to them. But there's so much more to it, right? Like they are managing an entire corporation of a family unit. They make sure that the food is under control, the medicine, the connections to the community to make sure that if anything ever happens to them, their children are taken care of. You know, like they, they have the, they make sure that the, the people who are protecting the community, the warriors, are well-fed and well-cared for so that they are going to have a vested interest in making sure that a bear doesn't come and eat one of their children or something. I don't know. <laughs> Bears don't eat children often, but yeah. um, you know what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. So they are, the, if we put it into a colonial context, if women were the leaders of all the corporations, of all the political systems, of all of the family units, it would look very different than the Christian colonial patriarchy structure. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And, and I touched on something that I kind of want to elaborate on is the debt strike. Okay. So um, there's a couple movements happening right now that have been trying to build up since um, the Wall Street, uh, Occupy Wall Street. Right. And these are debt strikes. So basically not paying your, your debts and not paying your rent, you know, and, and bankrupting the capitalist system because people are ignoring that construct of debt, which is not real money. It, it is not real wealth, right? Um, debt is issued to you based on the assumption that they are going to make money off of your interest. So it's, it's not actually even real money. Um, I'm gonna encourage um, just about everybody out there right now, particularly anybody who has like, major mortgages, um, major loans to defer, 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 and even attempt to cancel all their debt, student loan debt, mortgages. You know, if you, if you have to call the bank and tell them, I'm sorry, I can't pay this. I'll never be able to pay this. Sue me. And that's how you're going to get your money is blood from a stone. That's, I'm moistly speaking. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> I love moistly speaking. That's going to be something I'm going to have the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm salivating at the idea of the entire capitalist system canceling all debt. It can be done. There was back in 2018, a credit card company from the U.S. canceled all the debt that was in Canada held by their members so that they could walk away from their holdings in Canada. Chase? Pardon? I think it was Chase. Yeah, I think you're right too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I try not to like say these names 
of yeah. corporations and politicians. Well, I think you're allowed to if it's a good thing. But yeah. like if I were to say what I really think of the, you know, certain hospital that I gave birth in, mm. although it is pretty public, um, you know, I, I try not to say anything. I try not to say their name, but not that it matters. You can. There's no yeah. reason why you can't. Yeah. 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 I mean, like debt fight club could easily happen digitally. We could just put everyone back to zero. No more stocks. No more digital holdings or not digital because digital currency is totally different. Yeah. But, you know, shareholdings, which aren't actually real money either, you know, and just put everyone to zero, big goose egg, start over. Yeah, and I remember grade uh, 10 was when we first learned the concept of compound interest. And I was like, how, how did anybody get away with this? This is mm -hmm. the stupidest concept, unless you're rich. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I, um, it's so funny because like you're, you're talking like obviously where this is totally possible and feasible but like I was joking about eating the rich and right away mm -hmm. I had people reporting me to my leaders and ugh, I'm like you mm -hmm. capitalist apologist I, I can't even I yeah. can't like we're never going to get anywhere if I mm -hmm. an indigenous woman has to be tone policed by non-indigenous people to non-indigenous colonial structures like if they God forbid they ever watched my show or listened to my podcast. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, you're, the, the fact that you're having these conversations in and of itself is really powerful, right? Oh, I wish because, it was. Well, but it is because you're giving a voice to people who might not necessarily get to have their voice. Right? Yeah, I, well, I just remember in Occupy, like we... It was just one of those things that I thought, is this going to be it? Are we finally going to create a real change? And like, absolutely nothing changed. And in fact, we had all of these like, you know, middle upper class kids, uh, 20 year old kids who had uh, parents who, you know, make a lot of money in the oil and gas industry down here, mm -hmm. you know, in their $500 tents and, and such hanging out and displacing the Indian residential school survivors. Mm. And it was just such a, such a bold, ugh. And then they were mad at me for supporting Paul Hughes. Well, Paul Hughes, he was at least willing to make up a camp for homeless people. Yeah. And um, the police were supporting that. They brought the homeless to him right away. And he set up a you know, place for everybody to live. It was literally a really great um, tent city. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing right now. Only right now the police are breaking it up. And it's almost on all of the abandoned railway uh, right-of-ways across Canada. There are tent cities because... Mm -hmm this capitalist system is just not working. Yeah. Down in, in Portland, Oregon, they have something called Dignity Village. So they took abandoned parking lots and built tiny homes for women who were homeless to live in, um, in this Dignity Village, right? And then there's tent villages around there and they're, they're governed by the people who live there. They grow food, you know, they have their own police system. The police know that they're not welcome in that system, you know, unless they're called upon and, and they're self-directed, you know, it's like a little intentional community within the community of Portland, Oregon. And I have a lot of admiration and respect for that. And I, it needs to happen more. Mm. Right. But I mean, when you're trying to control a population of people and you put a bunch of desperate, scared, sick, hungry people together, you run the risk of them rising up. Yeah. And, and coming together and deciding, hey, maybe we don't want 
to have these systems of control like banks telling us that we are not worthy of having even welfare because we don't have identification and we don't because our ID gets stolen. We can't have bank accounts. So we can't cash our checks to buy food or some substance to just like placate the pain for a moment while I deal with this horrid reality that I live in. Uh, Isaac Murdoch, he's really, you know, pushing us all to go non-status. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's hard because like, you know, I can get my girl, and I talked about this yesterday, I put out a video, a 34 minute video on uh, 11 questions that were asked to me from grade 10s. And uh, I talked about, they said, well, what are your, you know, what are activists talking about? And, you know, obviously I wanted to talk about the wet sewage and that, but I wanted to give them diversity and have them know, like, you know, here I am a quite privileged, well-to-do person. Mm -hmm. And yet it's going to cost me a lot of time, hundreds of dollars to get all of the different longbird certificates and everything to get my daughter her status, something that my uncles, my cousin, my male cousins never will have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I was non-status up until what, 1985. And mm-hmm. uh, it's that constant, like you have to fight for your rights. You have to fight for everything. And for what? For, a, for a, an ID, really, mm-hmm. for a number, a registered number that really and truly should just be automatically like issued. Like it shouldn't even be, something you have to fight for i can't even mm-hmm. believe you have to um but here we are this is what our society is made up where mm-hmm. we have to spend hundreds of dollars to get a registration number how stupid is that well in a registration number into an apartheid yep. system of control that governs the bodies of indigenous people mm-hmm. right like it's there's part of like i've got cousins who are currently going through that process as well you know, um, with the um, changeover to allowing Indigenous women who married non-Indigenous men to regain their status. There are cousins who are going back to the Kootenays, which is our one of our First Nations, and saying, I want to be a member of this nation, right? And um, going through that process. But what does that mean? It's supposed to mean that we get represented we, we get supported by the, sorry, let me back up here. It's supposed to mean that the government up maintains their part of the treaty in that the wealth that they have taken from our lands is given back to the people who signed those treaties. It's supposed to mean that they are protected from violence, from isolation, you know, all of these horrible things. I haven't read all of the treaties, but that's the gist of what I understand of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, becoming status just means that they know who you are. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, feel like, I feel like Indigenous people with status are monitored more closely than are people who are registered sex offenders. Oh, it's true, though. That is so, so true. But, you know, like I've talked about policing Indigenous people, like I have books on it that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Canadians are so unaware of the whole purpose of policing has always been to, you know, police us. And mm-hmm. that's why Karens feel so entitled to call the cops on a group full of Indigenous, like Colton Crochu, this is his neighborhood right here where mm-hmm. he went missing. And mm-hmm. when they went to have his memorials and his vigils, 
some, somebody was calling the cops on us because we had a bear in the sky and we had uh, completely surrounded by police and the community association wouldn't let us in. So that was the reality. And that was what, when did he pass away? 20, 2013? Like this mm-hmm. is recent. Um, and people are, they just cannot wrap their head around, non-Indigenous people cannot wrap their head around our reality whatsoever. And, uh, and the irony is, you know, I know a lot of Indigenous women fought really hard for us to have the right to have status. Mm-hmm. And I, I need to honor that. Of course. And that's why I do it. But it's the point. It's the point that, like you made, where it's, this is an apartheid system, that we're fighting to stay in an apartheid system. It just, mm-hmm. nothing about this world makes sense unless you're rich. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the interesting thing that non-Indigenous people who don't get the, the oppression that Indigenous people go through, if they put it in the context of capitalism and the debt slavery and they could understand their oppression, yeah, you know, they would come closer to understanding what Indigenous people are going through because it is all profit driven you know yep. it's control driven it's making sure that people um are, are managed the same way any asset in a business is managed yeah right absolutely um but i suppose a lot of like the majority of people are workers they're not business owners they're not um capitalists so they don't they don't see the inventory of people right the same way that a capitalist might mm-hmm. so. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on my show today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this was awesome. Like, um, you know, I'm one of those people that is completely guilty of not listening to all of your episodes of your podcast, but the ones I have listened to have educated me, helped me deepen my awareness and knowledge and, and activism in the community. You know, so thank you for the service that you do by preserving these voices and these opinions and these situations during a time when so much is changing, you know, and uh, you're making it possible for us to share this information out into the world. Mm. Well, if you ever want to come back on my show and share other information, whether it's a project you're working on or, you know, just want to elaborate more on this conversation, you're always welcome. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, And your friendship and your activism in the community is important. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, no, you do good work. So I'm honored to have you on my show and I appreciate your kind words. I don't, don't never know how to like take that because like, it's, uh, I don't know. It, I just see so many people out there trying to do that work and, um, you know, trying to just give my family this moment in time in a podcast. So this is what was happening on, you know, COVID-19 a month later. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about, well, we're talking about Occupy again. We're talking about what it could be to have system change. And, you know, I, I don't want people to uh, not, not be thinking that way because, you know, typically we've seen over and over again, um, even in a pandemic, the capitalist system just continues to thrive. Mm-hmm. And we see it because we see our leaders, you know, as you said, helping out the landlords, helping out the business owners, helping out the pipeline corporations when we know they don't help us out at all. So I don't know. We'll see where it goes, but I do, I just want everyone to be safe mm-hmm. and uh, survive this thing because in my opinion, every indigenous person that's alive is a, 
you know, their existence is resistance. It's one of mm -hmm. my favorite, favorite things to say. And if we can keep going, that's all that matters to me. Well, and, and if I can just close by encouraging people to think about the world that they want to see, mm. right? Because we get so easily drawn into the fear of what could happen. Yeah. And Don Coyas of the White Bison Society, um, who runs, who created the Well Variety Program, he says, you know, what you focus on, where, where your attention goes, energy flows, Right. And so we need to keep our attention on when we come out of this, what's the world we want to see and just mm -hmm. stay focused on that you know, yeah. and encourage other people to focus on that too. I love it. Well, thank yeah. you so much for being on thank the show, you. Heather. It was wonderful to spend time with you and chat, Michelle. Have a wonderful day. Merci. You Merci. too. <laughs> and say, say hello thank to you. David for me. I will. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, I guess I better end this by saying <sighs> Indigenous have been talking about the issue, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor the words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, um, if they are cutting violence prevention programs, services, Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay-straight alliances, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, the violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational health justice systems with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. And if they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, uh, classism, sexism, they literally have no business running. This should be understood by all parties and local politicians, community organizations, sports, uh, nonprofits, and everything. A great article that I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. I want to continue by putting cultural safety into action so that you can create a safer space for Indigenous, people of colour, those with disabilities, LGBTQ2+, and other marginalised. Look at it as first aid only for marginalised people. First, do something. Having good intentions is not enough. Take actions to make change. Speak out against racism. Ask questions with those with more understanding. Create a support system for yourself, allies, and have uh, culturally safe approaches. Take responsibility for your own learning. Read, reflect, and ask questions. Do not expect this learning to come from Indigenous people. Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions and biases. Question everything you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt the stereotypes Commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. And here to help.bc.ca, uh, Indigenous people, and what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it is basically what I just said. Um, internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous or marginalized folks 
experienced by the structure of racism imposed on these lands, such as the Indian Act, Indian Residential School, and other land clearing policies. EquityTools.org by Donna Bivens has a lot of information. Uh, do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by the American Friends Service Committee has a, a line about how to help if you're a witness of public instances of racism, anti-Black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, or any form of oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment, where they have these do's and don'ts, which I read out quite regularly in all of my um, um, podcasts. So, you know, teach your kids. Teach your kids this accountability. If you're experiencing emotional distress and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they also have a text option if you're uh, a texter. Um, but that number is different. It's, uh, it's through their website of hopeforwellness.ca. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, sure want to tell us theirs. And usually people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Just typical microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism and become gatekeepers that survive off the status quo or people who are so in their trauma they stop people from doing the good work and deplete personal resources internal and external racism is an everyday reality for indigenous people how sad i needed a podcast for a boundary to be heard but here we are i want to say thank you to my ancestors my granny my mom of what strength looks like through your example i want to thank my dad for being strong and blunt my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through your Austrian family and roots and stepping up to teach me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through you I am a second generation proud Calgarian. Thank you to my husband Darcy for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, childhood friend, father of our child and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child who we are blessed to learn from daily, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope that my daughter, my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand down the road. Again, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Brian, Celine, Diana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kenna, Leah, Marisa, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you did one donation or many and had to quit for financial reasons, please know I appreciate your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to end with a side note to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. So thank you for listening. <laughs>